Hi, this is Erin James Brown. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I serve as the interim site pastor at Urban Village Church, Edgewater. Urban Village Church does bold, inclusive, and relevant ministry for people who were traumatized by church, people who feel overchurched, and even the non-churched folks. If you identify with any of these signifiers, we're so glad you're listening. Would you consider helping us continue this Jesus-loving ministry in and across Chicago and over the internet? You can make a generous recurring gift by going to our website, urbanvillagechurch.org backslash give. And thanks for helping us with your ears, actions, and dollars to build up God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And now, here's the latest sermon. My name is Kate, and I'll be sharing uh, with the scripture with you this morning. We're reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 47. Hopefully it shows up on the screen, too. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, even whom the Lord Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all, as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all to, uh, and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Oh, hello. Hi. Hi. My name is Erin James Brown. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I say this every week. Uh, and I don't realize that I say it, but I'm so delighted you're here. Uh, but it's not different every week. It's, it, I am delighted. Um, sometimes I'm just so amazed that people show up. <laughs> you are the ones who make church happen by being here, showing up. That is how we make church a place and a space for all. This month, we've been opening our sermon series time with a prayer practice of the labyrinth as a way of centering ourselves before we uh, respond to what the word we've read. Um, So you received a bulletin, not a clay, beautiful prayer labyrinth like this, but in your bulletin, there is a paper labyrinth, what's called a finger labyrinth. So I invite you to get it out. CC's uh, our... Uh, airline stewardess, steward, uh, airline, uh, what, do you, what do they call it now? Attendant. Flight attendant, thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you need a bulletin, um, De- Demetrius has some at the back for you. He'll bring one around to you. But labyrinths, just a reminder, are kind of like uh, a puzzle. 
not really a maze, but more like a journey, a pilgrimage one takes, uh, looking for God at the center, looking for God along the journey. And so we'll take about two minutes on this pilgrimage together. You can move as quickly as you want through this labyrinth or as slowly as you want. The way I like to do it is starting at the entry point. There's only one entry point. Mine looks a little different than yours. That's okay. Um, taking in a deep inhalation and then a deep exhale begins your journey along until you reach a bend or a curve in the labyrinth. And at the bend or the curve, you take another deep inhalation and then exhale, continuing your journey. And then as you reach, if you reach the center, you can rest in that space. Mine has an affinity symbol, so I can kind of trace my fingers. Yours just has a center dot where you can just rest, experiencing the presence of God as you breathe in and out. And then whenever you're ready, you can make your way back out of the labyrinth. There's no goal. We're not trying to achieve anything, but trying to breathe deeply and feel God present with us. So we'll take a few deep breaths together. Then I'll set a timer for two minutes. And then after the timer goes off, I will pray us out. So deep breath in and out. Breathing in peace and breathing out any anxiety. On your next exhalation, begin your journey along the labyrinth. So wherever you are in your labyrinth, take time to stop, bring yourself back. 
each week we've done this practice, uh, and then I've just kind of led us into a time of prayer, and I wanted on this third week to take a second to hear what was that like? Maybe a one-word response. Maybe boring. (laughs) Maybe something else. Does anybody have one-word response, what that was like? Presence. Calming. Centering. Focus. Challenging. Changing. Mm -hmm. The nice thing about prayer practices, um, some of them work for some of us and they are lovely and some of them are like gouging our eyes out terrible. And if this is not the prayer practice for you, in two weeks it's going to change. So don't worry. (laughs) We'll do a different prayer practice. But ancient prayer practices are ones we come back to over and over again, sometimes at different points in our lives, because they might be more meaningful at different points as well. Uh, But this is a practice you can always return to. You can take this paper home with you. And it is also one you are invited to set aside and pick up at a later date. Will you pray with me? God, you have gifted us with these ancient practices to help us connect better with you. Help us to focus more on where it is you are guiding us in the midst of our life transitions. Help us to tune out the noise that wants to distract us, pull us away, change our desires from what it is you desire for us and for our community, God. And so We ask that you continue to insert yourself in practices, whether it's through this labyrinth or other ones, that we can continue to seek after you, learning what it is you desire for this world so that we too may align our hearts to desire that as well. And so it is in the name of our brother and friend, Jesus. Amen. I spent a lot of time, for some reason, thinking about this crowd surrounding Peter. How many were there? What did they look like? How were they sitting, standing, leaning forward? It doesn't really matter, but for some reason, the fact that their hearts were pierced makes me think they were leaning in, crouching down, ears inclined a little bit more so that they could hear. Maybe they closed their eyes so they could concentrate so deeply on what it is he was saying, process the words and block out all the other senses around them. Was it a group of five or 30 or a group that fills a concert at Soldier Field? I don't know. It doesn't really matter, but I like to imagine it was more than five. (laughs) I imagine a group large enough that they have to lean in more forward, crouching, maybe some are sitting, maybe some are standing closer to their neighbor than they're comfortable with, soaking in the words of Peter and this new understanding of faith, how faith is changing radically for this new community. Peter is preaching and teaching to a crowd of folks, many of whom identified as Jewish about the death and resurrection of Jesus, this Messiah for whom they had waited, who threw everything up in the air like confetti and changed how the church should be. He was preaching about this wildfire of the Holy Spirit that seemed to consume everything around it, changing people's hearts and minds and lives, and it felt uncomfortable, much like wildfire does. 
He was telling him about how the terms and conditions is what we would call it in our day of an age. The ones you have to agree to, but you didn't read all the way through. The ones that they're so ubiquitous, you could have sold your first child, but you really don't know and you don't care. You just need that app now. These were the things he was trying to spell out for them about their faith and how it had changed. While the idea of embodying this new way of faith, remember, they had practiced for generations how they would be in relationship to God, and now something had changed. But this new way of faith was actually more of just a remix on the traditional. Way back in Leviticus and Numbers, the Jewish community laid out these guidelines in the Old Testament to help people embody faith done well in community together. It had been done for generation upon generation upon generation. The clarity, the beauty of the Old Testament laws gave people a foundation for their understanding of God's movement in their midst. It was clear where they should go next. And these laws sustained them, helped them through many cycles, cycles of freedom, cycles of enslavement, cycles of powerlessness and power, cycles of drought and plenty, cycles of corruption and faithfulness, cycles of the rise of innovative, which also kind of reads problematic or bossy, leaders, and the cycle of the retirement or the death or simply a new direction of their trusted leaders. So these were ancient practices they had done, the ways of following faith in God. And now they were being transformed. Some, I bet, were in that crowd excited about the possibilities. They were the entrepreneurs of faith, shall we call them. Some were scared. Some were scared that they would be forgotten in this new change. Some were completely not on board. They wanted things to stay the same, believing that a transition from no Messiah to life, death, and resurrection with a seemingly stranged Messiah would destroy faith. But we know Jesus does not destroy faith, only fulfills faith in God. Because Jesus' life, death, and resurrection did not diminish the challenge of community, because actually, spoiler alert, if you read the rest of the book of Acts, it's all about fighting and conflicts. If you read practically all the letters attributed to Paul, you'll understand that this new thing they were doing was not easy. This transition from a life of no Messiah to a life fulfilled by the Messiah continues to bring up complications for them. And these are the realities of the changings of the terms and conditions. This is what it means when a it, religious institution gets its life mixed up together, like kneading of bread. And yet, Peter believes this remixing of faith practices can be done through collective understanding that we are all beloved children of God. And so he reminds the people, this is what he says, although big changes are coming, we are people of baptism, people who have been baptized, people who are thinking about our future baptism. Do you remember your baptism? Was it a profound moment of transformation for you? Did you rise up out of the waters, wipe the water from your eyes and cry with your hands above your head because you were a 13-year-old seeking attention like this one? <gasps> were you too little and you cannot remember crying out loud and your parents, their faces turning red because they were just trying to hold you and make you not spew everywhere? No matter whether your brain has these trusted memories or not of your baptism. Either way, you may be like me and not feel like a miracle happened in that water. 
the only you had to sit around with wet hair and no makeup on afterwards. And yet, and yet it really did. Even though you didn't feel that transition through those waters, leading up to those waters, the many years after that water, you were drawn more closely into the fellowship of believers. You and I were drawn more fully into the desiring of what God desires for us, what God desires for our community, what God desires for the world. This is what the power of the waters are. It's not the one moment, but a life expanded of washing our face every morning, remembering our baptism. And so when we enter into those waters, when we have it dumped on our heads or let it trickle over our eyes, or when we're an infant just crying through it, we begin this lifelong pursuit of pursuing God's desires, this lifelong pursuit of what God desires for us, for our children, for those who live really far away. Because the waters of baptism are liberal and lavish and they splash everywhere and baptize and bathe all of us in God's desires for the world. And I love talking about what God desires for the world, but I also know that sometimes I get a little like out there and it becomes very hard to understand what does God desire for the world. I just want to list, I want to check it off and get God's desires done. And so if you are like that, here we are. Pull out your pen. How do we know God's desires for this world? In this major time of big and small transitions, how do we desire what God desires for this world? Well, Peter thinks he knows, and he spells it out plainly in verse 22, but he doesn't add any elaboration or understanding, so I'm just gonna add my side comments throughout. How about that? Okay, so number one, how to understand God's desires for this world? Teaching. Peter says in verse 20, we understand God through teaching. That means not just reading your Bible by yourself, I think, but it means that this Bible is historic, poetic. It's a living document, and it's really hard to understand. Has anybody tried to pick up the Leviticus and try to read it by yourself? I fall asleep, and that's okay, because it is hard to understand. And so we need other people coming with their historical context and knowledge, other people in their lived experience and perspectives. We even need, hold your breath, scientific reasoning, philosophic reasoning, in order all of these things that come together to help us to read, listen to those who paid institutions a lot of money to teach them about how to read this. We need to discuss it with others to hear from different perspectives and different angles of how this story impacts their lives. Teaching is how we understand God's desires for this world. We also understand God's desires for this world, Peter tells us, through communion. Communion, I want to warn you, is not just bread and juice on Sunday morning. It is a representation of what communion really means for us, which is sharing our life stories and sharing our life together and sharing food together. This was before the terms and conditions you could agree to on your smartphone. This was the technology Jesus used was meal to subvert and disregard hierarchies that embedded in how people should eat, who was invited to the table. And Jesus said, you are welcome, all of you, all you smelly, mixed up, wild, wonderful people. Pull up, a pull up a chair at this table. Social norms be darned because God's table is for all and all are welcome here. Not only just welcomed, but celebrated here. And so we eat together. We give testimony. We tell our spiritual autobiographies. We're part of a small group and intentional relationships because these are our mini midweek communion pieces sustaining us 
towards that banquet of God when God gets everything that God desires. And so number three, the way you understand what God desires in the world, Peter says, fellowship. Fellowship that produces wonders and signs. And fellowship sounds, that's a very churchy word, isn't it? Have you heard it anywhere else besides church? It's a very churchy word that in my mind usually just means coffee and donuts before or after. Uh, Kind of all of us starting around awkwardly waiting for someone to say, okay, it's time to start. But fellowship, actually, this koinonia fellowship is more deeply of a commitment to one another. It's more like our partnership of relationship to one another. Some might even call it like a covenant of marriage to one another. So that when someone is going through a divorce and needs a place to sleep, fellowship says, steps in and steps up to say, I've got a couch, I've got a bed, I've got a room, I've got an apartment you can use. Fellowship steps in and steps up when someone has surgery and they bring a vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free, carb-free meal. Basically, it's just broth, but they want to make, fellowship says, we want to follow all of your dietary requirements because we care about you. Fellowship steps in and steps up to bless a friend when they move, to help them pack up their apartment, to clean out the storage and scrub that weird spot that nobody knows if it's stained from two, it's wine stain from two Christmas parties ago or if it's blood from the last tenant. We're not asking questions. Fellowship doesn't judge. We're just here to scrub. Fellowship is a commitment of showing up, turning out in times of need and in times of joy. And the last thing Peter says is prayer. Prayers of labyrinths. Prayers Jesus taught his disciples. Serenity prayers, prayers of the saints, words of blessing and keeping. These are the ancient practices that connect us, not just here on Sunday morning, but they connect us to this space and time, a legacy of people of faith. We are This is the thing that keeps me committed to Christianity. We are built upon a history of people who have trusted and followed God in this way. These words that we pray are time-tested, and sometimes they mean different things at different times in our lives. Sometimes we cling to a certain phrase or word within the prayer because it is giving us life that day. These practices remind us that we are not alone that we were, can you imagine, we were so dearly loved by our four parents of faith, they didn't even know we would exist. And they gifted us. They trusted their God and entrusted us with these practices of prayer so we can trust that God will continue to guide us with these practices of prayer. These are the practices, Peter says, that help us understand what God desires for the world. Do you remember what they are? (laughs) It's not a test. I will ask you again, but it's teaching, (laughs) communion, fellowship, and prayer. They teach us God's desires for this world. Not only that, they then are these practices we do over and over again that convert, change our desires so that we no longer desire what we want for this world, but we desire what God wants for this world. They shape our hearts as if we are made of clay to resemble the heart of God. These practices make us, uh, like Megan said, a little different. (laughs) Make our church community look like a contrast, a divine disruption to the way people normally behave. And these practices, 
I have to tell you, will not make you pious or perfect. If that's also something you like to do, the checklist, and then I will be perfect, that's not going to happen. It's actually about allowing the spirit to radically challenge and change our internal selves so that we can challenge and change the normal practices of the external world. This is what it means to pray that God's kingdom come and God will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our deepest safety and security does not come from mindfulness meditation. Our deepest sense of safety and security doesn't come from eating healthy or getting enough sleep or drinking water, although those are good things. Our deepest safety and security does not come from maintaining does not come from staying the same or remaining comfortable. Our safety and security comes from the power of God through Jesus Christ, a power made evident in our shared life together. A shared life together means change is a coming. That through teaching, communion, fellowship, and prayer, there will be lots of transitions because we're all getting our lives mixed up together. Mixed up means change. A life of transition and community stands in direct opposition to what those Jewish people in whom Peter was teaching had absorbed as the place where safety and security was supposed to be. They were trying to change their internal understanding, preparing themselves for this huge change that was to come. And so these practices, do you remember what they are? Teaching, communion, fellowship, and prayer. If you weren't saying it along with your neighbor and just like, that's fine. These practices don't also don't create a utopian society. By practicing these practices, it will not ensure that our phones are not suddenly listening to our conversations, and my theory is robots are suddenly gonna take over the world. These practices do not create a stress-free, conflict-free, akunamatata kind of society either. In fact, these practices ensure we will be left in times of transition. Times of transition as a couple, a family, or a community, are never perfect. Do you, do you know about times of transition? My family moved this week and it has been nothing but fighting because it is a time of transition and we have to decide now where that couch is gonna go and it can never change and my opinion is right. These are seeming, the conflicts seem to mount and we have to have so many conversations about a couch. Arguments seem more frequent because we have to decipher what God's vision board is for this couch. This is what it means to be in community when we will fight, we will struggle with one another because we are looking for God's vision board for this new future. We want to not only agree, but concede, agree to change that we all have all deciphered our way of life together. And so transition means fear of the unknown, fear of losing our place, fear of losing our voice, fear of not mattering to others in this future that is unknown, fear that creeps into our minds and causes us to do the things we said we would never do, which is to stay the same, to put the couch where it always was, to go back to the way we understood things to be when they appeared to be in order, because we knew what it was like. We knew how to handle those problems, and it wasn't much work, particularly for people in the majority or those with most privilege. And yet, times of transition can also be, oh, so incredibly hopeful. They can be, oh, so incredibly innovative. They can be 
quite euphoric in lots of ways, marked by hope and joy and generosity and imagination that doesn't bow down to anxiety, but is deeply anchored in God's love. These practices, do you remember what they were? You don't have to say it. They were teaching, <laughs> communion, fellowship, and prayer. They rather reveal a different, clearer, God-desired trajectory for our future together. This divine disruption we're all going through comes through people, you and I, wearing common everyday clothes with weathered hands that need a little bit more moisturizer. This work comes from you and me. The divine disruption comes through times when we share our life stories together, when we share our life projects and our life plans that are worked out, not in our own, by our desk, but when we work them out in a communal space, when we share it with the rest of the community. Because you know what happens when you share your stories and your life projects and life plans with the common people around you in your faith community? We experience this intensified, what I call divine wanting to participate with others, a divine wanting to hear their life stories, a divine wanting to help them write new life stories that are not full of pain, but full of hope. When we get our lives mixed up with each other, we have this divine urge to participate and propagate the life projects of our fellow community members. It means then we have this deep desire to support their small business, to retweet their writings, even though they might be bad to help them reorganize their closet and it's a mess and we still don't judge because that's fellowship. When we say you are ours and we are yours in community together, it's like this navel pull, pulling us closer to each other. It even shifts our own life plans. We might choose then to stay. Choose when the rent is cheaper to stay in Andersonville or Edgewater, or Uptown or Rogers Park, because this is where our people exist. This is where our plans exist. This is where we want to build up a new life, new community involved. This is where we incarnate the divine for others and others incarnate the divine for us. And so we don't have to fear transition because we also know just like our four parents of faith, we've done this before. We know that the anchor of our ship is tethered to God's desires because we've seen this. At Urban Village Church, we see that uh, Juan Pablo referenced this in his testimony. When the global United Methodist Church discusses and argues and protests and votes and then ultimately decides to condemn queer people, we say, our God says, Juan Pablo said, pardon my French, screw that. <laughs> We're not scared of the future because we know God's got this, that through the waters of our baptism, God has got this. While the future of the United Methodist Church is unknown, we are proud that others are looking to us. Did you know others are looking to Urban Village Church, you, to say, and those who are firmer interns, church planting residents, partners, they're looking to us to say, what are we gonna do? Where do we go? Lead us to this new, confident, forward seeking God desire for a church in a time of transition. So I'm confident, I'm even euphoric. This change will bring about clarity for many people to return to church, to find a new church for the first time because they want a church that celebrates and stands for what it celebrates. So I'm confident in transition. I'm confident in us because we've been through transition before. At Urban Village Church Edgewater specifically, we were blessed we blessed and then sent our founding pastor, Brittany Isaac, 
Brittany Isaac, you know, poured sweat, tears, and her family life into this community and then transitioned into a new job and you all helped with that, transitioning to interim leadership. Some of you miss her greatly for so many good reasons. She led this community as a sure, strong, queer woman. And some of you never knew her. <laughs> some of you folks have no church memory of the before interim was here. Your presence and your testimony are the, your presence is the testimony of God's innovation, of God carving new paths. You are the testimony that a church will not die when a founding pastor or planting pastor or popular pastor transitions into a new powerful position. Whatever will come, our church will grieve and change and sustain and grow. We are still here today to tell our fellow Urban Village Church sites that during this upcoming time of staff restructuring, they're going to make it too because we know all about transition. We will teach you. We will show up for you. It will not be easy, but we will continue to grow because our baptism of community and our life has, is awash with God's spirit. And we're not worried because we've been through transition before. From the law of Moses to the resurrection of Jesus, from Peter's teaching of a new communal life getting around tables, from getting our life mixed up together around tables and money and stories shared together, the church not only survived, but grew, regenerated, and became an abundant new life. We will make it through transition because we've done it before from a government run, beautiful, but expensive church buildings of the Renaissance to the reformation of diverse denominations and interpretations of the reformation. The church busted out and busted out all over in all these kinds of traditions that we still maintain today. We will survive. We will thrive because we know we've done it before from colonization to the great awakenings, to the missionary movements, to the division of many, practically all. We are the last ones on the church train the division of denominations around good, just stances around slavery, gender equality, gender expression, sexual, and sexual orientation. The church has always split around these things, and the church has continued to refine and seek God's desires for this world and maintain a life of resurrection, and it's always done better together. So we will not be seduced by this transactional nature. We will not be seduced by our fear of change. We are not going to give in as those who are just receiving and keeping score and waiting for others to slip up and fail us. Instead, we are and will be baptized in this new life together, this old transition together of getting whipped up by the Holy Spirit. And so, do you remember these practices? I can't remember. <laughs> I have them written down. Teaching, communion, fellowship, and prayer. Help us understand God's desires for our lives, for our children who desperately need what we have found in Jesus. And to those flung to our faraway spaces, we are the church in transition. We are people in transition, which means we are tethered to our God in times of change. But it also means we go forth not alone, but together. Will you pray with me? God who guides us through the waters and leads us to a new life in baptism. God who guides us in the path of discipleship that has many twists and turns just like a labyrinth does. 
You go with us that we may bring the promises of your kingdom near. And you invite us not to set aside our doubts and fears, but to bring our joys and concerns to you, God, through prayer. And so we ask that you transform us, that we may have eyes to see and hearts to understand your vision, your desires for this new future, so that we can help your kingdom come and your will be done in and through and around us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.